0: Welcome to How to Live with the Rich, a limited series podcast about how the middle class can actually, practically, and biblically help the poor. I am your host, Bec Isaacson, and welcome to the show. Podcast friends, And welcome back on this fine Tuesday. This is, of course, part three of our Bible episodes. We have talked about the love of money and what the Bible has to say about caring for the poor. And this week we are talking about some very controversial Bible-y things, which are works and rewards. And so let's start in the only logical place, which is in 1878 with a group of Armenian monks. But before we get into that goodness, let's talk about tiny happy things, which this week is all about blue light glasses. You guys, I have wanted to have glasses ever since I was a child. In fact, I do have a very distinct memory of being in Gosh, maybe year three or year four, which for you Americans would be third or fourth grade and wanting glasses so bad that I faked having an eyesight problem. My mom took me to the eye doctor place. Is that an optometrist, I think, question mark? And they did that eye test where you read a bunch of letters off of that white card that get progressively smaller. And I just remember very clearly faking not being able to read what it said, which I mean, looking back is so terrible. I'm so sorry, mom. But thankfully, as I never got glasses that day, it seems that everyone could see through my elaborate ruse. But 20 years later, my dreams have absolutely come true in the form of blue light glasses. Now, listen, I have absolutely no idea if the science behind them is solid and if they actually do anything productive at all, but I can tell you one thing for sure, and that is when I wear them, I am more productive, I feel like I'm smarter, I am definitely cooler, and for whatever reason, I just get a whole lot more done. So couple that with me wearing my posture correcting back brace, and I really get into the productivity zone. I fully understand that it is probably 5% functional and 95% mental, but you have got to do what you've got to do to get it done, you know? They help me, and I love them, and so that is my tiny happy thing for today. But back to the monks, because I'm really excited about this. So let's do a little history deep dive together. In 1878, a document known as the Apology of Aristides, Aristides, I'm not sure, uh, but it was discovered by a group of, you can probably guess, Armenian monks. Aristides was an early Christian writer and philosopher who wrote directly to the Roman Emperor Hadrian around AD 125. And his Apology, which you know, I believe is just like an old fancy word for writings, I think, let's go with that, but it was an early comparison of world religions, of which he writes extensively about the early Christians. And I am going to read you a translated excerpt. But please know that the real thing is a whole lot longer and it is also so good and I wish I could read the whole thing. But okay, are you ready? It says this, but the Christians have found the truth for they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and of earth in whom and from whom are all things from whom they received commandments, which they engraved upon their minds and observe in hope and expectation of the world, which is to come. Wherefore, which, side note, is just the most fantastic word. Let's absolutely bring that back into our regular vocabularies. But, Wherefore, they do not commit adultery, nor fornication, nor bear false witness, nor embezzle what is held in pledge, nor covet what is not theirs. They honor father and mother and show kindness to those near to them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man, and whatsoever they would not that others should do unto them, they do not to others. And their oppressors, they appease and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not, without boasting." And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother, for they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the Spirit and in God. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. Every morning and every hour they give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindness toward them, and for their food and their drink they offer thanksgiving to him. And they do not proclaim in the ears of the multitude the kind deeds they do, but are careful that no one should notice them, and they conceal their giving just as he who finds a treasure and conceals it. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them." Okay, you guys, I don't know if it's just me, but this lights up my soul. This is a new people and there is something divine in the midst of them amazing. Yes, I love words and I love Jesus and I just love this so much. I just love that somebody could study the lives of Christians and not simply their doctrine. I love this whole concise and supernatural list of countercultural behaviors that set Jesus' people apart from the rest of them. And here is this Crazy and beautiful part of this whole thing. I don't think this call has changed at all for the people of God, and I think that we are called to these exact same practices, this exact same set apartness, which at the end of the day truly is just holiness. Now We can compare this beautiful ancient image of Jesus followers to the current cultural representation of Christians within our minority world, specifically by the media. I mean, it's not hard to find that Christians today are almost always portrayed as these old-fashioned, uptight, judgmental, hypocrites Or the alternative is as backward-hating, two-toothed hillbillies, and there just isn't a lot of room in the middle, it seems, for any form of scientific, rational, or intellectual thought, let alone power or jaw-dropping generosity or kindness. And, you know, this breaks my heart a little bit because I feel like what is being currently portrayed is just a very, very cheap substitute for what the original masterpiece of God's grand design should be. And this is because it seems that the early Christians provided a totally new way of being, a way that was characterized by moral character and human dignity and care for the poor. It wasn't for them just about believing in Jesus as like just a head knowledge kind of thing, but it was an entirely new, entirely different way of life. And as part of this, Jesus himself talked frequently about this practical and life-changing care for other people. For example, in a number of the gospels, we read the story of when Jesus lays out what is known as the two great commandments. He says that we are to first and foremost love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. And secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus himself said that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And I think that these two commandments are called the great commandments for a reason. I don't believe that they are supposed to be suggestions. And yet these are the things that are so easy to remember but also so difficult to execute because they are so countercultural, and, to be honest, rarely socially acceptable. They also both require our action, which walks us into what is a very delicate field, and that is that of works. Now, I don't know what kind of a church culture that you grew up in, or even if you grew up in a church culture at all, because I, you know, I don't want to make any assumptions here, and you are all welcome, of course, all the time. But for me, at least, the world of works or even the word works in a church setting was almost taboo. And I kind of get it because there is, in some respects, some really good reasons for this. Namely, I think that people work really hard to avoid even the suggestion of having a works-based faith. And this is inherently good. I mean, Anytime that we add anything to the cross of Christ, when it comes to our salvation, it should absolutely be rejected. However, I also don't think that is the end of the argument, especially not when you, you know, open your Bible and actually read what it has to say, which, you know, is a very good life practice, highly recommended by me for whatever that is worth. And that is because Jesus, being the sole way, the truth, and the life, and of course, the only way to be saved does not actually also mean that our works do not matter or that our actions on earth don't have eternal consequences. And don't you worry, I will absolutely back up that statement with uh, my good friend James to help me, who is always down to give us a good punch in the gut when it comes to this particular topic. And he says in James two fourteen to 16, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? James, (laughs) I love James, I love the book of James, but he makes it pretty dang clear that our faith and our deeds are and should be intertwined. And as another perspective, David puts it this way in Psalm 62. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. I mean, I'm for sure not the smartest cookie in the cookie jar, but it very plainly says that God rewards everyone according to what they have done. In other words, our deeds matter, our works matter, And in that James example specifically, the good deeds or the good works that he was talking about were directly related to meeting the physical needs of other people and more specifically, meeting the physical needs of those who were in need. And if any doubt still remains on the subject, then there is still one additional passage that completely puts this whole faith versus works thing to bad in my mind. And that is 1 John three sixteen to 18, which says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. I mean, Jesus both defines and outlines love for us within this passage, and it is directly linked to providing material possessions for those who do not have and putting our faith into actual, practical, biblical, real action. But unfortunately, what I have seen played out for many Christians is this kind of clever and maybe even subconscious loophole that we have put together to avoid this. In our effort to do anything possible to avoid a works-based faith, we have instead become comfortable living in the total other extreme, which is being fully comfortable not doing anything external or active to demonstrate the faith that we profess. It seems that we keep our faith firmly in our heads and in our hearts and completely out of our practical lives, not meddling in what is a very tricky business of global restoration or interaction with other people, especially those who are messy or different from us culturally. And although this is, you know, a very comfortable place to live. It unfortunately is not biblical, at least not from the Bible that I read. I mean, we can also take Isaiah 58 as an example, which is one of my all time faves. And this beautiful passage talks about fasting and specifically what types of fasting do please God and don't please him. And it says that the types that don't please him include those who go without food while exploiting their workers, AKA shady, dodgy, hypocritical business practices and those who start by lying in sackcloth and ashes and finish in quarreling, strife and fist fights, which obviously is just an average Tuesday for most of us. But at the end of the day, it seems that God is not pleased with religious acts that reflect zero inner life transformation. And to all of this, God says, Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rearguard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in the sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose water never fails. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets and dwellings. I mean, this is not... Uh, All of this passage and there is so much good stuff in there, but it is just so clear to me that the kind of fasting that delights the Lord is loosening the chains of injustice, setting the oppressed free, sharing food with the hungry, providing shelter for the poor wanderer, clothing the naked and caring for your family. The results of this, you guys, are healing and righteousness as well as protection from a Lord who listens, answers and provides. I mean, I don't know about you, but to me that sounds pretty great. That sounds good. I want that. And the message is the same over and over again and it is this. It really 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 truly matters how we care for the poor and in need. And here is the fun part. If we do this if we give our lives away for the Lord. It is not without purpose. And then this leads us into the second controversial Christian territory of the day, and that is talking about eternal rewards. And this is another one of those topics that I did not hear a lot about growing up in the church, but I also can't ignore it because there is just so much scripture about it. And so here is just a little sampling of what I mean, a little sampler plate if you will on scripture that talks about rewards. Psalm 62:12 says you reward everyone according to what they have done. Matthew 6 implores us to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. The parable of the shrewd manager in Luke 16 refers to real riches. Matthew 25 and the passage about the bags of gold equates our faithfulness on earth for a later abundance. And then later in this same passage, when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, the faithful receive an inheritance from him. In Mark 10, Jesus tells Peter that anyone who gives up brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, or fields for the gospel will receive a hundred times in the present age. Ephesians 6, 7, 8 says, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And again, these are just a few examples, but the point of them all is the same that what we do on this earth for the Lord will reap a great and lasting reward. And that essentially what we do matters for every single person who lives on this earth. And for both the believer and the unbeliever, the compensation for that is deferred, which for the believer should absolutely fill you with hope, but for the unbeliever should actually serve as a warning. And as another example, we have Matthew 16, whereby Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this, Or again, we have Luke uh, 14, 12 to 14, which says this, "'Then Jesus said to his host, "'When you give a luncheon or dinner, "'do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, "'your relatives or your rich neighbours. "'If you do, they may invite you back, "'and so you will be repaid. "'But when you give a banquet, "'invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, "'and you will be blessed.'" Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And so again, just to really hammer it home so that I am not called a heretic again this week, we can absolutely attribute our salvation 100% to the life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I agree with that. Yes, of course, 100%. Amen. Sign, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. But it also seems that we will attribute our eternal rewards to our action or consequently our inaction while we are earthside. And this, you know, should actually be really good news for us because if we obey the scriptures and we put our faith into action and essentially we give our lives away, which is the call for the followers of Jesus over and over again, then we can be absolutely assured that it is not without point or purpose. And it is, in fact, an absolute win-win situation that brings God glory and will eventuate in our eternal and ultimate good. Now, of course, great reward should not be the primary purpose for us pouring out our lives and giving up things. However, it is also not something that we should take lightly or write off as well because we do have this incredible but also temporary opportunity within this world to invest eternally by giving our wealth away, by caring for the poor, and by doing good deeds that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And so that is my very basic summary of works and rewards as part three of our four-part little mini series on the Bible. And as always, I would absolutely, truly love to hear your thoughts and ideas and you can reach me over on instagram at how to live with the rich or you can email me send me a good old-fashioned email at how to live with the rich at gmail.com please do join us for next week for our final bible series episode i'm really excited about this one it is all about the tithe and why christians do not give so have a wonderful wonderful week and i will see you next tuesday bye